Welcome to Interviews for Resistance. We are now into the second year of the Trump administration, and the last year has been filled with ups and downs, important victories, successful holding campaigns, and painful defeats. We've learned a lot, but there's always more to learn and more to be done. In this now weekly series, we talk with organizers, agitators, and educators, not only about how to resist, but how to build a better world. I am Sarah Jaffe, your host. This is Joe Dinkin. Uh, campaigns and communications director of the Working Families Party. So um, you all had a big week last week. So uh, we had a huge week start out. Week. Yeah. So I want to start out with um, some of the good news. Um, Paul Ryan is uh, no longer. Um, so tell us about, well, first of all, what was your reaction hearing that he was no longer going to run for his seat? Well, you know, there have been rumors swirling for a while that um, Paul Ryan um, might get out of the race um, as, yeah. as, you know, Randy Rice's campaign picked up steam. Um, yeah. You know, the sort of uh, mainstream political class sort of said that, that that's nonsense, that, uh, you know, Paul Ryan has the more money than, you know, more money than God, that Paul Ryan uh, isn't worried about anything. Uh, that Paul Ryan is, you know, riding high on his, uh, uh, on his tax cut bill, um, and that those are just rumors. It turned out that the rumors were true, uh, and that Paul Ryan quit before he could be fired because Randy Bryce, the, uh, union iron worker and, and working families party activist, um, has give, you know, who we said, uh, I think probably last time we talked, we said Paul, uh, Randy Bryce is going to give Paul Ryan the one of his life. Uh, it turned out we were right. Um, so Randy Rice from the beginning said he wanted to repeal and replace Paul Ryan. We've gotten the first half of that done. We've, uh, we've repealed Paul Ryan. He'll be out of Congress. Uh, and it's, yeah. you know, pretty satisfying to say that, you know, this is a guy who has talked about dreaming of slashing, uh, Medicaid and the social safety net back to his Kegger days. And the idea that that, you know, how, how, uh, how Paul Ryan was getting his jollies as a, uh, in, in his youth was dreaming about making poor people suffer. You know, yeah. it's just so infuriating that, that I couldn't be happier to see him uh, exit public life. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, he'll probably end up with a, you know, lucrative uh, lobbying contract of some kind. Um, yeah. But he won't be in the same capacity able to inflict the, the kind of direct harm on people that he was able to do by, you know, ushering through the passage of the of the monstrous Republican tax plan. Yeah, and so I want to talk about that a little bit before we get to Randy Bryce, because is this a sign that, you know, this is the person who is the author of many, many tax reform plans, this one that actually succeeded. Um, is this a sign that this particular part of the Republican Party, not just the sort of Trumpist, like, fake populist racist wing, but the, you know, the we want to draw on the government in the bathtub wing is also in deep trouble? Yeah, I think they're in huge trouble. Um, I think that what Paul Ryan realized uh, is that what what he did is politically indefensible. There's no way to take that record back to voters in any part of America and justify what he did as anything other than theft in the name of governance um, on behalf of some of the richest people who've ever lived um, and at something that will cause immense suffering to, you know, millions of Americans of modest means. It's just um, morally indefensible and, and politically indefensible. And I think he saw the writing on the wall that he couldn't run on that record and win. Um, in that way, I think Paul Ryan is the tip of the spear. 
Um, and I think a lot of other Republicans are going to realize that that, that vote was a, a deeply toxic one, um, not just, you know, not just a stain on their conscience, but also uh, damaging to their political standing. You know, there was just a special congressional election in uh, Pennsylvania 18 um, where uh, a Democrat won um, this, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh, you know, sort of archetypal working class white district. Um, where the Republicans were running ads on, the, you know, trying to kind of buck up the Republican tax plan. Those, those ads just weren't moving the needle, and they abandoned that ad, you know, a couple of weeks before Election Day because it wasn't working. And, you know, there's no way they can hide from that. Yeah. So speaking of archetypal working-class districts, I mean, Paul Ryan kind of represented an archetypal working-class district. And so sure. uh, you found an archetypal working-class dude who in many ways is not just that guy, right? Like the thing that I find interesting about Randy Bryce watching him for several months is that this is a guy who's not just sort of running on being the the manly man iron worker. This is a guy who ran on like caring for his sick mother. This is a guy who's gotten arrested with dreamers. This is a guy who's now calling for not only marijuana legalization, but marijuana amnesty. Like he seems to be smart on a lot of things that are not just, the sort of, you know, white working class bread and butter issues that we hear a lot that, you know, the Democrats have to return to or else something, something will lose to Trump forever. Right. You know, I I think people like Randy Bryce, which is to say working class people, have been used as an icon and a symbol in politics for a long time. But it's really pretty rare that somebody from a, a, you know, working class background, from a union household, you know, a union uh, worker um, with, uh, you know, family troubles and health problems is himself seen as a real political actor and not just not just an icon or a symbol. And I think what you're seeing with Randy is that people are actually a lot more complicated than, than the single stereotype. Randy is not just running on you know, what might most immediately appeal, uh, appeal to a pollster stereotype of the, of, of, of the, the, the hard hat white working class. Uh, he's, you know, running on, um, healthcare for all and the care agenda. And he's been unbelievably vocal about, um, defending the rights of immigrants and, and the DREAM Act and about criminal justice reform, uh, marijuana legalization. And as, as you pointed out, um, uh, marijuana am- amnesty for people who've been um, convicted um, of something that really should never have been a crime. Um, yeah. uh, and he's running on a, a bold and progressive agenda that is a populist agenda that speaks to people's um, kind of economic needs and also uh, understands that there are, you know, special kinds of um, uh, difficulties and oppression that, that fall on um, that fall on uh, you know, people who are more marginalized. Yeah. Certain parts of the working class, we might say. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the wisdom of the D.C.-based consultant class has been mm-hmm. that the only way to win um, a swing district or even a Republican-leading district like this one is to, yeah. uh, you know, to run as this uh, moderate uh, and it's just not, you know, it turns out that exactly the opposite is true. The only way we're able to make that race competitive is by having somebody actually run on his life story on the things that's impacted him and people he cares about and on what he believes in, which is to say, to run on this kind of uh, bold, you know, multiracial populism. Yeah. Yeah, and so, 
Give us a little bit about Randy Bryce's history with the Working Families Party. How did how did y'all get involved in this particular race? Yeah. So Randy is um, somebody who was involved in the founding of the Wisconsin Working Families Party. He'd been a member since the very beginning. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the um, very you know in in, in the um, sort of moment of resistance to Trump. Um, Mm-hmm. We started planning a series of protests uh, all over the country as, as Paul Ryan traveled the country, um, uh, avoiding his constituents. You remember this moment. There were these raucous town hall meetings all over the country. Um, Paul Ryan was ignoring his constituents and refusing to do a town hall meeting because he knew exactly the kind of reception he would receive. And at the same time, he was traveling around um, and doing high-dollar fundraisers. And, you know, he did one in New York. He did one in Providence. I think there was you know, a, a couple of others. Um, and what we did was because he was refusing to hold town hall meetings where uh, his constituents could give him a piece of his mind about, um, at the time, the Republican health care plan and some of the nomination fights, um, uh, we ran a series of protests where people around the country and the places where he was going to go visit wealthy donors rather than his constituents would organize protests and they would use their cell phones to make video calls out to you know, ordinary people back in Wisconsin who didn't get the chance to ask Paul Ryan a question. They would, you know, FaceTime basically into these protests all around the country. <laughs> and one of the activists who was participating in those protests um, from back home was, was Randy Bryce. Um, so a couple of months later, when it came time to uh, uh, start looking at a candidate to really take the fight directly to, to Paul Ryan electorally, um, Marina Dmitrievich, who is the uh, director of the Wisconsin Working Families Party, um, along with our, uh, the Wisconsin LAFP political director sat down with Randy in a coffee shop, um, and they just asked him point blank, uh, you know, we need people in Congress who can represent working families, and who better than uh, somebody with, uh, you know, a real working class person with a, with a working family um, to, to be the standard bearer for, for, for that movement, to, you know, tell the truth about Paul Ryan's record. And it took a little convincing, but, you know, Randy ultimately um, agreed to do it. We've been unbelievably proud of his, his success, um, of his, uh, you know, viral video, which I think introduced, introduced America to him. Um, uh, but we like to say we knew Randy before he was a star and we're so excited about his star and, and, you know, he's going to be the next member of Congress from, from the first district. Um, it's, you know, still going to be a race. So I don't want to, you know, encourage anybody to, to get too complacent because it is a Republican leaning district, but, um, you know, there's there's a candidate who can win it, and it's it's Randy Bryce. So, do we know who the Republican or who the Republicans, I guess, are that are going to step up now that Paul Ryan is not running for re-election? You know, it's not entirely clear. Um, there is one sort of uh, you know far right wing, you know alt right, you know white white nationalist um, candidate in the race uh, already. Hmm. My Probably. my guess is they'll, you know, recruit another sort of more um, uh, more polite uh, Republican into the race as well. The filing deadline is a couple of more weeks out, so we'll, we'll have to see um, how, it, how it shakes out. And, you know, in some ways, the Republicans are in, uh, you know, realizing their vulnerability with Ryan's record. They get to, you know, back somebody who's never been in Congress and who would have voted exactly the same way. But doesn't have it on their on their record, and they think that will excuse them. Um, and and we think you know we're gonna be working as hard as we can for Randy. So in other big news this week, um, the the 
never-ending question for the Working Families Party has always been sort of Andrew Cuomo and the governor's race in New York. And uh, so the Working Families Party in New York voted to endorse Cynthia Nixon. That's right. Um, with 91.5% of our state committee um, at a state committee meeting in Albany just a couple of days ago, um, yeah, the Working Families Party um, endorsed Cynthia Nixon. We couldn't be more excited. Um, you know, for eight years we've had a New York where um, the agenda was largely controlled by a governor um, who was dedicated more than anything else to uh, a handful of very wealthy donors. Um, when under pressure, he has, you know, delivered delivered a couple of, uh, <laughs> you know, been forced to deliver a couple of um, gains for, for progressives and for working people. But he's somebody who fundamentally has been um, running a, a state government that, you know, has has protected um, the interests of his super rich donors more than any of the other constituencies in New York. Um, uh, our state committee members saw that as, as unacceptable and got really excited by um, Cynthia Nixon's announcement, who, you know, starting in starting in Brownsville, New York, um, from the day that she announced, has put put the focus hard on fair funding for public education, um, on the role of money in politics in New York State, on um, legalizing marijuana. I think the way that she put it when when she announced that was, you know, there's this is uh, um, something that's effectively already legal for white people. It should be legal for everybody, and people really respond when you tell the truth. It turns out. So, speaking of telling the truth, Andrew Cuomo has largely gotten what he wanted in those eight years, including a couple of Working Families Party nominations. So, what what changed this time? You know, uh, um, four years ago, the majority of the Working Families Party State Committee voted for Andrew Cuomo after he promised um, to pass a raft of progressive legislation and work hard to win a Democratic majority in the state Senate and end the independent Democratic conference uh, as a separate conference and create a um, Democratic majority that, you know, in a blue state like New York ought to actually be able to tax a lot of items of, of the progressive agenda on from economic justice to, you know, uh, reforming our democracy to climate, you know, real, a real plan on, on climate change to um, criminal justice reform. He promised a, a broad suite of progressive issues, and he promised to elect Democrats to the state Senate. You would think it shouldn't be such a controversial thing to try to elect members of your own party to the state Senate, but for Andrew Cuomo, uh, you know, a little bit of background for people who aren't from New York. Um, there has been a breakaway faction of the um, state Senate Democrats. Um, they call themselves the Independent Democratic Caucus, and for the last, you know, six budgets, they have... Um, sided with Republicans and led to uh, led to Republican budget after Republican budget. You know, budgets are a moral document. That's where we get to fight over what's important in our society, who pays and who gains. Um, and after, you know, when Andrew Cuomo in 2014 promised he would end that, you know, unholy arrangement that was um, artificially keeping the New York State Senate um, from passing the progressive agenda, um, he promised he would end it. He promised he would pass the progressive agenda. He mostly broke those promises entirely. Um, and instead of, uh, uh, instead of campaigning to win Democratic seats in the state Senate, he created a fake party called the Women's Equality Party, um, meant to damage the Working Families Party and spent millions of dollars to back that up, uh, instead of winning back a state Senate, uh, majority. So it took until this year, um, four years later, when the Working Families Party was fielding challengers against 
um, the members of the Independent Democratic Caucus, for Cuomo to finally uh, collapse the IDC. You know, he spent the last four years saying he couldn't do it, uh, and then it only took an afternoon when he actually wanted to. Turns out he could do it. So I was at this meeting, as you know, but for our listeners, um, and I was really struck by – because there had been a lot of threats made that week, right? Andrew Cuomo did not go gently into that good night. Um, he threatened the funding – or he threatened the unions in order to threaten the funding of community organizations that were backing Cynthia Nixon. Um, and I was still struck by how people in that room seemed like they weren't scared of Andrew Cuomo anymore. Yeah, it turns out organizing works. Um, the people got together and decided, you know, built a shared vision uh, and said, we're not going to be bullied by this guy. Yeah. You know, there was a sense of defiance even. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there was a, a couple of votes for a hell yes and fuck yes to endorse the <laughs> That's right. Uh, so well, how does this connect to this sort of more national strategy that now is really in earnest for y'all, right? How does how does the choice to challenge Andrew Cuomo connect to the success of a Randy Bryce? Yeah, here's, here's how I would say. I think especially with Trump in the White House with a cabinet, you know, and an administration composed of billionaires and avowed white nationalists, um, who've been running the country, um, the urgency for our kind of values um, is, is felt, you know, more deeply and more broadly than ever before. And people who are, you know, the opponents of that progressive agenda, whether whether they're Republicans or whether they're Democrats, um, are really feeling the heat right now. And it's emboldened people to pay closer attention to politics. You know, the, when I talked about the IDC in New York, you know, we spent six years, eight years banging the drum about the Independent Democratic Conference and how um, this new, this third caucus in the state Senate was blocking progress on the progressive agenda, uh, and almost nobody cared and almost nobody really understood it. It took until the election of Donald Trump for people to, you know, really wake up to politics, pay attention to the news in a deeper way, look around and say, well, why can't New York pass, you know, the Dream Act here, pass um, health care for all to ensure that if, if Trump guts uh, Obamacare, people are still covered, pass um, the Reproductive Health Act, uh, and all of these measures of the, of the uh, progressive agenda that people deeply needed. Why can't we do that? Well, it was because of this, you know, uh, these, these uh, uh, state senators who were caucusing with the Republicans, and people got active and people got mad. I think that kind of thing has happened all over the country, where there's this new um, activated, uh, almost... Um, radicalism. There's a new energy in voters who are hungry for serious change and are really more open than ever to, to big ideas about the kind of change we need. Yeah. And it also just it separates to some degree the working families. And we talked about this the last time. It separates you a little bit from the old model, which was very much based in New York unions and community groups and the fusion voting strategy. And now you're, you know, that still matters, but it's not quite the center of the Working Families Party strategy anymore. Yeah, you know, we've always, we we are, have always been built on um, kind of a, a base that includes unions, community organizations, and 
grassroots activists. And, and what we've seen since the um, election of Trump especially, but even going back before that to the Bernie Sanders campaign and to the rise of, of some of the social movements over the last couple of years, is that that grassroots base, the individual activists, are on fire. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, that has meant that some of the unions, both four years ago and now this year, are deciding to, uh, at least for now, back away. Yeah, um, that's right. You know, uh, I think they're in a difficult position, and, and, you know, I feel for them. I think they made the wrong decision, but I I get why it happens. Um, And we are, um, you know, we are 100% committed to, you know, to unions and to the labor movement and to workers' rights, um, and that's never going to change. We're always going to be there fighting for working people, um, both the ones in unions the ones who deserve but don't have the protection of a union, and, you know, people piecing together work in the gig economy and people who are unemployed. Those are all working families, uh, and and we're going to fight as hard as we can for all of them. Um, so another thing that was announced recently about the Working Families Party is that you have a new director. So um, hopefully That's I will right. get a chance to talk to him soon, but just tell us a little bit about him and, and the – the vision that um, I guess that he embodies for for the party. Yeah, um, his name is Maurice Mitchell. Uh, I couldn't be more excited. I've known him for a while, and he's just always impressed me as an unbelievable organizer, strategist, and leader. Um, he is, you know, there's not a lot of people who can really do the kind of big, inspiring vision that gets people to sign up and follow along and the tactical, nitty-gritty details to, to build the plan about where we're going. Uh, and Maurice can really do both of those things. Um, and so that's why, you know, we're really excited about him. Uh, he's spoken really um, eloquently in the media in the last couple of days about his vision for where we're going, um, which is a vision that, you know, kind of ends the false dichotomy between um, the fights for economic justice and racial justice and says we actually need both of those things. Um, and a vision that... Uh, embraces the rise of, of some of the, you know, social movements that have sprung up over the last couple of years from, you know, Occupy to the climate movement to the Dreamers to the movement for black lives. Um, and says, you know, there's all these people in the streets all the, uh, all the way up to the, you know, most recent, you know, youth led movement against gun violence and says, these are people who are fired up and they need a new political home and, and we could be that home. And there was one other thing going on this week, right, that you were going to tell me about? Yeah, one other thing. So, um, uh, actually, there's a few other things. Okay. <laughs> you well, know, we have right, to look at one page six days in New Jersey this week. But the one other thing I was going to tell all you about. Right. Congratulations. Uh, was, I somehow missed that one. Thank you. I know. It was a big week. Yeah, we also had <laughs> um, 75 people in Las Vegas at our spring school. Um, which is um, part of our kind of growing political education program, um, brought together 75 people from around the country and actually a couple internationally who are organizers and activists and a couple of elected officials and leaders within the Working Families Party for a kind of intense three-day or three day long political education program that was um, sort of built on, you know, a big analysis about, um, about you know, uh, kind of helping people develop their ideology on um, <clears throat> class exploitation, on structural racism, on 
um, you know, the, the uh, kind of reinforcement of, of gender roles in our society and on a broken democracy that's failed to really transform and overcome those, those challenges that we're facing. Um, and it included everything from sort of, um, you know, readings and discussion about those things to just really tactical um, kind of role-playing about scenarios that you can run into in, in you know, your local city council race or school board race or state senate race and how to take some of the, the um, kind of ideology and education that, you know, all that theory is good on paper uh, and turn that into practical skills that are going to help people, um, you know, make good decisions in, in the in the heat of a campaign moment and just like workshop those those things. So it's a pretty cool model that we're trying out that is uh that we've been um growing around the country. Um all right, so how can people get involved with any and all of the things we've talked about today? Um people should go to our website at workingfamilies.org and sign up and we'll keep you updated and get you plugged in on all those things. You can also um, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all, all the social media. And if, the, if that's how you uh, stay, stay engaged, and that's, that's where you, should, you can find us there, too. Interviews for Resistance is a project of Sarah Jaffe with assistance from Laura Fayabois and support from the Nation Institute. You can find more information at NecessaryTrouble.org. Thanks for listening.